Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out, right now. My best mates are down in Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas Never Sleeps. I'm Stephen Maggi. And welcome to a whole new show as we bring Vegas home to you. It may be a while until you can come back to your favorite city, and we've all been missing Vegas. The fun, thrills, excitement that makes it a special destination, one of the most unique in the world. But it might be a while until you can get back here, and that's where we come in. We're bringing Vegas home to you with a team of regulars that will bring some of that only-in-Vegas fun to your home. Great recipes you can make, drinks you can replicate, entertainment you can enjoy, all virtually each weekend on Vegas Never Sleeps. Scott Robin, your Vegas insider, is with us, as he will be every week. We're really excited about that. And Speaking of excitement, Scott Robin is out of his mind excited for the opening of Vegas. What are you going to do? This place opens up now this weekend. What are you going to do, Scott? Where's the first place you go? Well, no kidding. I am super excited. Uh, I have been champing at the bit for two months, you know, being pretty vocal about my wanting to get back to the casino. Of course, people assume that's because I have a gambling problem. I don't have a gambling problem. I have a fun problem. I miss the fun, the excitement. Uh, I also like to gamble and drink. But it was interesting because it was a little unclear who would be opening uh, on the very first day, you know, that first opportunity to open because there was a lot of questions about demand, a lot of questions about whether these big casinos could kind of get their act together and open up uh, when they were allowed to. But now it's looking like dozens of casinos are going to open. So I was going to literally hit every casino that was going to open on the first day on June 4th. But now there's so many, there's no way I'm going to do that. So I think what I'm going to end up doing is probably going to dinner uh, downtown, there's a new place at the Golden Nugget called Saltgrass. So my theory was I would make a reservation, and I would just stay up till midnight. And at 12.01, I would just start gambling, and I probably will hit every casino downtown, from Plaza to El Cortez and everything in between. I'm going to dump my stimulus money into those casinos because I just can't wait to just pull a lever, push a button, have a drink, make bad jokes to a bartender. I miss that stuff so much. We miss it, too. And, you know, you mentioned fun, and that's really true. Are we going to be able to have fun? I mean, are they going to allow that when, you know, we we hear about all these restrictions and so forth? It's still going to be fun, though, right, Scott? I think there's a ton of stuff that will still be kind of central to somebody having a great Vegas experience. They, They do have to adjust expectations a bit because... Not everything that you love about Vegas is going to be up and running from day one. Uh, if you love Cirque shows, you're going to have to wait. If you love day clubs and nightclubs, you're going to have to wait. But for a lot of people, the essential elements of Vegas are still going to be in place, and it's just going to take a certain level of awareness. And believe me, the casinos are going to help with that awareness because if you've got a group of 10 people and you're standing in one spot, they're not going to let that happen. If you buy a craps table, if you buy a roulette table, You've really got to keep your distance now. Those kind of subtle adjustments, that doesn't take any of the fun away. It's just a different way of experiencing Vegas. But I think there's going to be a ton of fun. 
for folks that are traveling alone or who like to gamble alone, it's going to be just like it was. The only difference might be your cocktail waitress could have a mask on, but that is temporary. I've been calling it the new temporary, not the new normal, because that's never going to be normal in Vegas. Uh, but there's a lot of fun to be had. Thanks, Scott. You can read what's happening here in Vegas each day at VitalVegas.com. One of our new regulars is Chef Justin Wells, an incredible chef that will share with you all the secrets of world-class gourmet cooking. For years, French cuisine was only for the foodies. The rich people ate it. It was something that only the, the best breeding and so forth really had it for any time. You might have it once a year, maybe once every couple of years. That's all changing right now, and you're going to meet Chef Justin Wells, who's kind of making it his crusade. Now, Justin, welcome to the show. Is bringing French cuisine kind of to the mainstream one of your passions? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I think that, I think that it, it, as I explained to a lot of people, I think French cuisine is really more of a philosophy because you, you get the question all the time, you know, what do you serve at the restaurant and things like that. And they're always sort of shocked how, I guess, normal the food seems. You know, they, they tend to... Uh, zone in on on the sort of uh, caricature of French cuisine versus it just being like, well, you know, it's Northwest ingredients and prepared in a French style. So, you know, at the beginning when we opened, that was a, a lot trickier of a stigma to get past versus now. I think people are a lot more comfortable with what that means and, and, and how it relates to food that they're eating. Yeah, people don't seem to have any kind of problem with French desserts, but when it comes to the entrees, I guess the, the mind goes right to snails, and you got to tell them it's a yeah. lot more than that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you have the classic stuff, you know, what I consider like bistro fare, and a lot of that stuff, you know, the, those are really like, you know, French countryside dishes, beef bourguignon, dab de boeuf, cassoulet, things like that, you know, that people have, have sort of latched onto. I mean, that's not really fine dining in the respective as we know it now. You know, people have taken those dishes and elevated them. I mean, clearly when I make cassoulet, it's like I'm taking the very best of what I have and sort of combining that into that dish. But I mean, really, those are like rustic elements of that type of stuff. So I think when you get into the luxurious side of it, you're talking more about the sauces that accompany things like that. And a lot of people don't understand that those types of things have really infiltrated American cuisine as we know it and being a lot more normal. So I think when you talk about, you know, an ingredient like you say pork belly and people kind of, you know, what's pork belly? And that obviously got really trendy for a while, but it's just like, well, it's bacon. And then you (laughs) say that and they latch on. They're like, oh, I get it. Okay, it's bacon. It's just not cut into strips like they're used to. One of the things that we did was we got rid of the French verbiage on the menu, which we clung to that for a long time, and we were very proud of that. But I think it also, removing that from the menu kind of removed some of the hurdles that people had, you know, because we want people to come in and be comfortable and sit down and order and not have to feel like, you know, they're pointing at the menu or, you know, don't want to say something that's a, a strange word to them. And it just kind of lowered the barrier for people. And I think it was hugely helpful. Let's tell people a little bit about your restaurant. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, it's a great visit. It's this cute little place that has incredible food. La Petite Maison. I understand, you know, you mentioned Zoe, your lovely wife. You actually, your first date was there, as I understand it. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I always joke that, you know, you couldn't write a better story if you tried to make it up. You know, I've always loved that restaurant. It's been a restaurant since 1977. We, yeah, we had our first date there, and we actually subsequently got married there. 
some years later, and uh, it was kind of funny when I approached Randall about, you know, I said, hey, I want to get married here. We love this restaurant. I'd like to rent the place. And he said, okay, you know, let's talk about the menu. And I said, no, I'd like to rent it. I want, like, just <laughs> give me the whole restaurant. And I wound up actually cooking for my own wedding, which was sort of maddening. But everybody that knows me knows that that's... Um, pretty normal for me so we did a huge feast it was a really tiny wedding we only had 30 people and and did food for about 150 and everybody did a good job uh, eating and drinking so it was it was really fun well we'll talk a little bit more about the restaurant but i want to get to know you a little bit where did you grow up did you grow up in the northwest yeah, Olympia, born and raised. And your childhood. People that, that know you say, my God, this guy and food just go together. Did you grow up like that? Were your parents great cooks? And what kind of cuisine did you grow up with? No, not at all, actually. We were very, very American. You know, we had the classic, like, you know, spaghetti on Wednesday night and, and taco salad on Tuesday night and sort of, um, yeah, just very classic all-American, you know, grill hot dogs on the weekend kind of stuff. My grandmother, who was widowed at a fairly young age, I spent a lot of time with her. She actually lived on a lake. My parents owned businesses growing up, and so they were quite busy. So I spent a lot of time with her. She wasn't a gourmand, but she definitely enjoyed nice food, wasn't afraid to spend money on great food, was very classic, like, generational of roast a turkey, eat the turkey that night, the next day make sandwiches for lunch. More with Chef Justin Wells in a moment. You'll also hear from our spirit swami, Matt Leos, and your art appraiser, Brett Maley. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. To re-emerge stronger and safer than ever, ask yourself these crucial questions. Should all restaurants, retailers, and venues have new safety and sanitation procedures in place? As a business owner, how can you assure your valued guests that proper protocols are being followed? How can you give your guests confidence knowing that you've prioritized their health and safety? Introducing VirusSafe Pro, a revolutionary mobile technology software that provides checklists, reminders, and confirmations to help your team perform health and safety measures right on schedule. It allows you to close the information gap in the workplace by giving your employees a dedicated source of credible instructions in a timely manner, right from their mobile devices. Validate compliance with health and wellness standards, provide regular safety and health messaging, and confirm that approved protocols have been performed all in real time and an easy-to-read dashboard. Tracking and verifying health and safety procedures in your business has never been more important. To learn more about how VirusSafe Pro can help you reopen, visit VirusSafePro.com. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-296-1337 That's 800-296-1337
Now, let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. As part of our new format, we're going to talk about cocktails, wine, and spirits each week. With that in mind, it's time for your sommelier, Matt Leos, who says you should consider one of his favorite wines. Hey, Matt, what is that? Well, I'm drinking Riesling right now. I'm having a Riesling uh, from a producer in Germany called Weingut Wegler, and this is uh, from the Rheingau in middle Germany, the middle um, part of Germany, and uh, this is a Karta Riesling. I know most people think that Riesling is sweet, and sometimes it can be sweet, sometimes it can be very sweet, and there's an application for all those different styles of Riesling. Karta Riesling, Karta is an organization that makes dry style Riesling, so very high-end, quality wines produced from Riesling, from the Rheingau, under the Karta designation, Karta, C-H-A-R-T-A, and the wines are dry. I understand that uh, Riesling is really one of the great buys where you can get really high-end wines at a really good price. Absolutely. Uh, Riesling is probably the go-to wine for most sommeliers that understand wine. Riesling is very easy to pair with lots of different types of food. Riesling can actually even, like aged Auslaser Riesling from Germany or uh, Schmeragd Riesling from uh, the Wachau in, in Austria. Uh, it's got some age on it and, and it develops some richness. These wines can pair with red meat. Really? Um, as, well as, as well as shellfish. Uh, yes, they're very diverse. Riesling is, is maybe next to, for red, red varietals, Pinot Noir is extremely diverse as well. But for white wines, Riesling may be the my most diverse white grape variety. Thanks, Matt. Let's get back to our conversation now with Chef Justin Wells, who will be with us each week to discuss gourmet cooking at home. So you decide, eh, I like food. Again, it's not the passion yet. And then you go to work at Olive Garden, and you really learned not so much how wonderful the food, I'm not trying to do an ad for them, but rather how the business works and so forth. And that kind of fascinated you, didn't it? For sure. I mean, anytime you have a business, you know, where 200 people work there, I mean, clearly they're doing something right. I mean, I don't denigrate them as a business model. I mean, it's not food that speaks to me, but, you know, there I learned a lot of time management. I learned dealing with interpersonal relationships with employees, working as a team, working in high-pressure situations. And so there was a lot of that sort of aspect there. And going there was really more of a situation where I could work at night, and I aspired to go to school. And so that allowed me, you know, basically to work part-time and have have the freedom of, of being around during the days. And I actually did prep cooking there initially in the mornings, which, again, you know, when you're talking about doing those sorts of volumes, it just it get, you learn time management and things like that, which, which is hugely helpful. I mean, any, you know, at the end of the day, if you have great time management in a restaurant, you're usually pretty successful overall. So how do you make the transition then to really the fine gourmet cooking that you're doing right now? How did you do it? How did you acquire your skills? Were that just kind of self-taught? Yeah, I mean, just self-taught. I've always really been into food and really been into wine. And when I got out of... Um, when I got out of cooking, I, I got into wine and, and actually went through the International Sommelier Guild, who was taught at the time before he got an MS, was Shane Bjornholm. Uh, I went through that at South Seattle Community College, 
And uh, that was a half a year, went through that program, and then subsequently went through the quartermaster sommeliers, took their test, and decided I wanted to go that direction, um, got really into it. And uh, kind of in the part-time, I had met Randall Hoff, who was the chef of, of Portofino at the time, which was obviously La Petite Maison. I would go in and work with him um, just to give him extra hand. And, you know, with restaurants, it's like having a guy that can come in and cook and help out on busier nights, but isn't a fixed entity is always a great thing to have. And so he'd call on me when they'd have busier nights or if he needed a night off or something like that. And so through that restaurant, I got to taste a lot of great wines, you know, wine reps would come in with bags of wine. And and so I was kind of sharpening my palate, just tasting through stuff, you know, and just having the opportunity to taste 40 wines a week for free, essentially, you know, is, is that's, that can kind of fast track you if you're paying attention to the wines. And, and, and I'd had a discerning palate even as a young child, and I see a lot of that in my son now. It's like just stopping to purely think about what you're eating or drinking or tasting uh, kind of develops that part of your brain. And I was able to move from having trained my palate on food for so long, wine was an easy transition for me, and I got pretty serious about it. Well, you talk about training your palate, and I find that really interesting because there is something to that, right? Whether it's food or wine, you got to kind of stop a little and think about it and maybe and try it again. And especially wine, you're dealing with, with whatever you opened. But with food, there are things with seasoning and so forth that really that's, I think, the difference, and correct me if I'm wrong, between really a chef or just somebody who can follow a recipe. Of course. Yeah, I mean, appreciation of anything, food, wine, music, art, you know, all of that stuff is trained. I mean, anybody can look at a painting and say, well, it's a beautiful painting, but to understand the context of when it was made and the details of it, I mean, I think appreciation for any of that sort of stuff is, it, it takes time. I mean, there, there's people who are naturally gifted and have a great palate naturally, and there's people that have to work at it and understand it. And so, yeah, I think food appreciation is uh, is underrated. And I try to get people to slow down and really kind of think about what they're eating. I mean, certain things are great to eat fast. I mean, I don't need to, like, spend 20 minutes on eating a street taco. Like, that's two bites and I'm done, but I can still appreciate it in that respect. So when I say slow down and think about it, it's actually internalize what you're tasting. More with Chef Justin coming up. If you're an art lover, you know our next guest. Time for a look at the world of fine art with the art appraiser from Pawn Stars, our friend Brett Maley. Today's question is, where do you place your art in your home? What do you think, Brett? I always advise people to hang art where you can see it. <laughs> you, you'd be surprised how many people they'll they'll frame something exquisitely or make a, a you know a fairly exorbitant purchase and then and it'll end up in a, a back hallway. Uh, the nice thing about Las Vegas homes, especially, is uh, they move towards very open air, uh, large vaulted walls and ceilings, and it actually makes for a very conducive atmosphere for viewing art the way it should be, which is kind of from a distance, preferably at eye level. And you want to, again, not to be flippant, you do want to hang it where people can see it. And there's certain types of art, certainly you want to have uh, a certain amount of breathing space. For example, if it's an impressionist piece, you don't want to be looking at that up close. You, you really have to, by the nature of the style, look at it from a distance. So you have to hang that maybe a little differently than you might a, a realist piece or a pop art piece. And then you also have to be a little careful too. You mentioned over the mantle. Uh, are you are you running the fireplace a lot, you know, because the heat and the soot and things like that over time, not immediately, but over time could adversely affect the piece. So, yes, I'm, I'm if people want to consult with me about where to hang their art or how it should best be presented, we're certainly open to that. And uh, it's very important. Well, is that an issue then with kitchens? Because there'll be smoke in a kitchen, you would imagine. 
or even in the dining room? Yeah, I mean, again, art is not a delicate flower for the most part. It's not going to just, you know, wilt as soon as, you know, heat gets it. But it's a it's a cumulative effect over time. And certainly over a fireplace, you're going to get some of the carcinogens and soot, even if you try to, you know, get it out through the flue or whatever else uh, over time. The kitchen, again, you wouldn't want to hang a valuable piece over a stove or, or you know, too close even to, you know, uh, lighting, uh, you know, track lighting. It pr- puts out quite a bit of heat. We've got some track lighting in our gallery that'll burn your hand if you get it too close to it. So uh, again, you want to have it spaced properly. Thank you, Brett. Coming up, more with Chef Justin Wells and a new segment. You'll meet Mike Ross, barbecue master from the great Jesse Ray's Barbecue. If you miss an episode of our show or just want to catch up on past programs, don't worry. All our shows are archived on our website, VegasNeverSleeps.com. You can also hear them on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. We're talking with our new gourmet cooking segment regular, Chef Justin Wells. Well, I can tell you that in your restaurant, you serve a great French onion soup. I mean, an incredible one. And I love French onion soup. Tend to get it wherever I go if it's available on a menu. But there's something about yours where I sit there and I and I want it to kind of drag on a little bit. And I, 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 I kind of want to wait through it because there are just like these certain tastes that I can't, I can't fully describe, but it just, it, it makes the experience different. I mean, is that, and is that what you're trying to do when you create these uh, different dishes? Yeah, complexity. You know, I mean, that's the biggest thing. That's kind of the hallmark of what I'm, you know, I, I love food that looks overly simple, but is entirely complex when you eat it. And so, if anything, you know, the trend of food where the plate got the plating got really wild, and there's 50 ingredients on a plate, you know, and if it didn't look like a carnival sideshow, you weren't doing it right. Like, I never really got into that sort of stuff. And there's some whimsical stuff that I'll do occasionally, and usually that's in the summer when we get a lot of vegetables. It's easy to kind of cut them into interesting shapes and kind of build from that. But my plating tends to be very simple, like a correctly cooked piece of meat with with a sauce or, you know, and so if anything, my food is really understated, which gives, you know, it's a naked environment. And, and if the food doesn't deliver it, it's tough. So you see a lot of superfluous food that looks really great, but you taste it and it has no soul or you taste it and it doesn't, it's lukewarm and doesn't really have any passion behind it. Uh, I try to shoot the opposite direction and go really complex, really well made, but more of a subdued kind of uh, appearance to it. And so again, French onion is one of those things where there's, there's not a lot of room to hide. Exactly. But you also do a dish, the airline chicken breast. And this thing is incredible because nothing sounds duller than just a chicken breast. I've never had anything like that. It doesn't taste like any chicken breast I ever had. It's the most wonderful thing. I mean, you can you can taste the butter. You can taste all these things. Is that like the challenge, you know, to take like like what you're talking about, like take something like a chicken breast and kind of say, you think, you know what one of these tastes like? Oh, we can do so much more. Yeah, absolutely. And I resisted for a long time. I and mean, we didn't have chicken on the menu for the first five years we were open. And I just, I resisted it to a point of just saying, you know, if people are going out, that's not what they want to eat. And then, you know, I, I had a lot of great examples of chicken and thought, okay, fine, I'll, I'll try something. And I actually wound up doing it specifically for truffle season because roast chicken with truffles is like 
one of the most delicious things you can eat. And we had some asparagus and we had some morels. So it was like as classic as it gets, you know, asparagus with morels and roast chicken and truffles. Like it doesn't get any more French and it doesn't get any more seasonal. And so I put that on the menu and wound up running it on the prefix menu and people freaked out over it. And so, you know, it became a fixed entity because, you know, dishes take on a life of their own and people just not, I mean, they expect it. They, they, they've had it and they want it again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is what Robert Irvine preaches on that TV show he's got on the Food Network. It's not enough to just have great tasting food. It's got to make sense and you got to know how to portion it. And it's got to be something that people love, but also that you can make a profit on because otherwise there's no more restaurant. For sure. Absolutely. And I find that, that people, you know, we've been at it almost 10 years, and I find that the, the general public in their understanding and appreciation of food has come so far in that amount of time. The Food Network has really sort of opened people's eyes to, like, food in general. And whether it's good or bad, I think that once people start kind of thinking about food and trying harder at home. The average home cook nowadays is so much better than they ever were before because you have access to better ingredients. So you enjoy that incentive, that competition with everybody out there and having a customer base that knows what they're talking about really kind of gives you the opportunity to really shine. Well, of course, yeah, because if you can exceed expectations, I mean, if you come in with expectation and I exceed it, then I've earned your business forever. You know, that, that's the hard part about what we do is, is that someone comes in the door and the expectation is generally set high because they've heard about the restaurant, their friend gushed about the meal, and so they show up and it, we get a lot of people to say, you know, we had high expectations, but it really exceeded that. And that's always a great compliment because it, it can be tricky sometimes. You know, I remember the first time I ate at the French Laundry and I, and I had to temper my excitement because <laughs> I said, look... There is no way that this place is going to live up to my expectation because I've had the cookbook for a decade. I've cooked everything in it. I love Thomas Keller. I love the idea of the French Laundry. I went, and not only did it exceed, but it just it blew my mind. So it was one of those things where it was like it, it, it just it was shocking. And so I think if we can capture that same sort of magic when people show up, it's just it's a win-win for everybody. We're going to be, over the next few weeks and months, going through some tips to help the home uh, the home chef. And I know talking to Zoe, this doesn't just stop at the restaurant door. You cook like this at home. Do you feel comfortable that you can kick up people's games? I mean, they're not, they're not going to dedicate their lives to it the way you did. But at the same time, you can make what they do a whole bunch better? Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, small tips. I think go a long ways and a lot of the most classic stuff just you know understanding seasoning understanding searing meats correctly understanding what braising really means I mean I think a lot of it is you take the most rudimentary techniques and add those into people's everyday cooking lives and it makes a dramatic difference you know I know that my mom being an all-american cook like I've showed her some things that has really elevated her cooking a lot. Simply, you know, using real stock. I mean, making stock from a chicken and using that real stock versus the watery stuff you buy from the store. I mean, that simple thing alone will elevate the average cook's food significantly, in my opinion. Thank you, Chef. You will hear Justin Wells each week on Vegas Never Sleeps. Speaking of regular features, here's a new one, and this one's going to make your mouth water. 
Barbecue Master Mike Ross joins us from the great Jesse Ray's Barbecue right here in town. I want to know, how do you come up with your recipes? It's very alcohol-driven. <laughs> One day, <laughs> when I first was starting this, you know, I was like, I got to write the menu, you know? So I got a bottle of Captain Morgan, and I got it on my computer, and I just started joking around and being creative and having fun with the menu. You know, I had a couple of Captain and Cokes, and just started <laughs> typing away. And the menu, like the Duke, the Household of Three, you know, the Belt Buckle, they all have little hidden meetings if people ever care to. <laughs> care to sit there and figure it out like the duke the duke the duke is named after john wayne and john wayne's from iowa who is the leading pork producer in the country and that dish just so happens to have pork on it you know so there's a little fun thing like that while i wanted to be known for um, my smoked meats i also wanted to be i had this goal to be known for the best french fried dishes in the town and so that was a big factor to me is to come up with some of these, these, we call them loaded in Las Vegas, which is kind of testament to how I came, came upon these uh, dishes in a way. So we call them loaded in Las Vegas. They're loaded dishes. They're stacked up with French fries or mac and cheese or mashed potatoes or whatever you want and with different meats on them. So yeah, it's just a, it's a very fun menu for me. It was fun to come up with. Um, it's fun to tell the stories behind a lot of the stuff. Like another one, the Jesse Ray sandwich. The Jesse Ray sandwich. The Jesse Ray sandwich is a good example of a really good sandwich with a backstory. Like it's named after my wife. The whole restaurant's named after my wife is Jesse Ray Roth. So that sandwich, when we were practicing and when we were doing a lot of competitions, you know, obviously we're cooking a lot of pork. We had a lot of pork sitting around, so she used to make a sandwich and she did like a white bread and then she would put a, like a mayonnaise or or the, the white sauce that we use on it. Um, she put potato chips on it, and then she put pork on it and coleslaw. You know, that's how she ate the sandwich every single time. So I put it on the menu as kind of a joke, you know, and named it after her, and it turned out to be one of our most popular sandwiches. Well, thanks, Mike. If you're in Vegas or are coming into town, make sure to visit Jesse Ray's just blocks from the new Raider Stadium. Absolutely incredible food, and if you mention Vegas Never Sleeps, they'll take off 15% from your bill. What a deal for incredible barbecue. Coming up, a brand new regular feature, the Sports Rack on Tours. If you like sports and great storytelling, you'll love this new feature. Today's topic, the life and very interesting times of boxer Rocky Graziano. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Hi, this is Dr. Annette of The Dr. Annette Show. We've been talking today about COVID-19 and steps you can take to possibly prevent or mitigate infection. Silver and zinc have been used for centuries as disinfectants and as antimicrobials. We're offering you this special discount to make it easier and more affordable to get these essential silver and zinc liquid mineral supplements. Visit our website at www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Once again, that's www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products, professional line not included. We are all in this together and we can get through this. 
Learn more at ElementalResearchInc.com and use the promo code Vegas20. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Storytelling, or raconteuring, is one of the most understated forms of American art. This segment looks to gather the best storytellers from the world of sports. Welcome to the Sports Tours. Today's tour is boxing author Jeffrey Sussman discussing one of the finest boxers of the 20th century, Rocky Graziano. I remember him as a kid, not so much as boxing, but... He was on like all the TV talk shows and he was on comedy. He's a real likable guy. But as your story tells, his life didn't start out that way, did it? No, he started out in extreme poverty. He was born to a second-generation Italian-American family. His father, uh, Nick Barbella, was a failed middleweight boxer and an alcoholic. And the uh, Barbella family, that was uh, Rocky's original name, Barbella, grew up in a poor neighborhood in Brooklyn, and they were so poor that when Rocky was only about six years old, they would send him out to steal coal uh, for the uh, apartment's pot-bellied stove just to keep them warm, and then they would also send him out to the beaches on Coney Island to dig up clams so the family would have something to eat. So he came from real dire poverty, and his father was also very abusive to him, so he emerged... Uh, from a life of of really terrible circumstances. Boxing was really, at that time, one of the ways you could get out of this uh, really difficult American life. Absolutely. And and Rocky was very fortunate because, as a teenager, he was headed on a path to be a criminal. He uh, had his own gang. They mugged people. They stole things. Rocky was drafted into the uh, army, and... His family thought that would straighten him out, and in fact it didn't. He wound up slugging an officer and went AWOL. As a result of that, he was wanted by the military police, and a friend of his named Terry Young introduced him to a boxing manager named Irving Cohn, who took Rocky under his wing and trained Rocky. But because the military police were looking for him, he changed his name. He, he adopted the name of Rocky Graziano rather than using his original name, which was Thomas Rocco Barbella. However, the, the military police, after a while, did find him, and he was sentenced to one year in prison at Leavenworth Barracks. And there he joined the boxing team, and he had a coach who really honed his boxing skills. And by the time he got out of Leavenworth, he went back to Stillman's gym where he had met Irving Cohen. And Irving again took him under his wing and trained him to be a very successful boxer. And boxing became an outlet for all the anger that Rocky had felt growing up. Boxing became a terrific outlet for him. What's interesting is, and we're going to talk more about that in a few minutes, is his post-boxing career where you'd never know this guy had all this anger, but it was like a way of channeling it. And it was at a time, too, when boxing was kind of in its golden age, right? I mean, you had people like Sugar Ray Robinson. and He fought Tony Zale. And from what I understand, and you describe it in the book, one of the bloodiest, nastiest fights you could even imagine. Absolutely. It, it, it was considered the bloodiest middleweight fight of the 20th century. Uh, in, in the first uh, bout with Tony Zale, which Rocky lost, 
he actually came out of it looking uh, with, with very few marks on him, whereas Tony Zale had to go to the hospital. He looked so badly. During the second uh, fight, which Rocky won, at one point, his left eye was so swollen that his manager, a man named Whitey Bimstein, had to take a half dollar and cut open the, the swelling above his eye so that it would drain and he would be able to see out of his left eye because if he wasn't able to see out of it, he wouldn't have been able to win the fight because he couldn't see uh, Tony Zale coming at him from the left side otherwise. People remember the movie Raging Bull about Jake LaMotta and as I read the this your story you realize that that wasn't fiction but there really was that kind of violence in there that we can't even imagine now i guess the rules have been so clamped down but at that time those, those fights were a bloodbaths and they basically went until you know somebody uh, somebody outlasted the other person exactly and and the, and the fight that uh, jake lamada had in, in raging bull with uh, sugar ray robinson uh, jake lamada was so badly beaten it was called the saint valentine's day massacre so here comes this guy. He has his career, becomes a hero in the Italian-American community, much like Rocky Marciano, but in a different weight class. Big hero. He quits, and what an incredible career he has post-boxing. I mean, you just don't expect somebody who's so connected with all this violence. When I remember him as a little kid, and I remember my parents talking about him and so forth, he's like a type of guy, like an uncle that would come over the house as a kind of a great Italian guy to hang around. Was it just a question of he appreciated what he had achieved through boxing and uh, it just changed his entire personality or what? It was a combination of things. First of all, he fell in love with a wonderful woman named Norma Unger, who he was completely devoted to, and she was to him. They had a wonderful marriage. Secondly, he was able to find a father substitute in Irving Cohn, who looked out for Rocky financially. You know, many managers stole from their fighters, or they didn't give them exactly what they were entitled to. But Irving made sure that Rocky invested his money very carefully so that he would have an income. Uh, once he retired from boxing. And at that point, no one knew that Rocky would have a successful career in show business after he retired from boxing. But by that time, his personality had so changed, he had gone 180 degrees from what he had been as a teenager, this angry guy ready to fight at the drop of a hat, to a guy who became one of the most generous and charming human beings you could ever hope to meet. Yeah, he had a really great wit, too, right? I mean, he was fun. I mean, he was on a lot of these talk shows and stuff. And then, of course, he had this great career with Martha Ray, who was a big star at the time. It, it, it was interesting talking about his wit when he was interviewed on The Tonight Show one night. I, I think it was uh, Johnny Carson who asked him what he used to steal when he was a teenager. And Rocky said, I stole everything that began with an A, a refrigerator, a car, <laughs> a radio, a bicycle. And yet... You know, people thought he was sort of a dummy because he was a boxer. And, and what happened is a, is a man named Nat Hyken uh, was the creator and producer of the Martha Ray show. Wasn't he the same guy that did Sergeant Bilko, the great Phil Silver's uh, yes. comedy? I, I, okay. Yes, he was. He, he, he was very prodigious. He, he produced a lot of uh, different successful TV shows. But the Martha Ray show was one of his first. And they were looking for someone to play... Martha Ray's boyfriend, and Nat Hyken was meeting with another producer and the advertising agency that sponsored the show, and they were sitting around, and someone said, you know, we have to get someone who's kind of dumb, can't speak well, someone like Rocky Graziano. And then somebody else said, well, why don't we get Rocky? And Nat Hyken went down to Stillman's gym and offered Rocky this part, 
And Rocky said, sure. And he was so beloved and so did so well on the show that after only a few weeks, they doubled his salary. They, they were delighted to have him there. And he became a very close friend of Martha Ray, very supportive of her. And she had a lot of problems. She was an alcoholic. She'd been married six times. She, she was uh, illiterate. She couldn't read or write. And she was very embarrassed that people might find this out about her. And then after she went off the show, uh, she suffered from terrible diabetes and had to have both of her legs amputated. And, 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 and throughout all of this, Rocky remained a steadfast friend to her, feeling that she had given him a second career, and he was very grateful to her for that. And I'm thinking in today's world of boxing, of course, it's completely different than back in the, in the golden era, you know, back in the 50s and so forth. The only person I could think of that maybe was a little like that was George Foreman, where he was such a mean guy at one point, and somewhere along the line, his persona changed. You don't see much more of that, though, right? I mean, it's, it's not the ticket out that it once was. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and it, it's amazing to know that during the late 1940s and the early 1950s, the two most popular Italian-Americans in the United States were Frank Sinatra and Rocky Graziano. And, and, and when Rocky's autobiography, Somebody Up There Likes Me, was published, it became the number one bestseller, not only in the United States, but stayed on the bestseller list in Italy for almost an entire year. Sports, I guess, is just a way where people coming over to America, coming with nothing, when you see a guy like a Joe DiMaggio or Rocky Graziano or something, it means a lot to the Italian person, the same way like Barney Ross and uh, you know Max Baer was for the Jewish community. That, that's absolutely true. And, and what's also interesting is, is these men had absolutely no prejudice against any other ethnic or religious group. They were just open to the world. They felt that the world had given them so much that they weren't blinded or hindered by any kind of social or economic or religious prejudice. Jeffrey, thanks so much for being with us again today. It was my pleasure, and thank you for interviewing me. You can read more about Graziano in Jeffrey Sussman's book, Rocky Graziano, Fist, Fame, and Fortune. Go to our website and check out the Sports Rock and Tour page. There are a number of great stories about the people that make the world of sports a special part of American life. And if you have a sports story you'd like us to share, please contact me at Stephen at VegasNeverSleeps.com. Thanks for listening today. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This is Stephen Maggi reminding you to join us again at Vegas Never Sleeps, where you can take a little Vegas home with you. <laughs>